Hmm. I was uh, I was reminded this afternoon of uh, a column that a friend uh, used to write. It was in a journal called Inquiring Mind. And those of you who sort of been around the Dharma scene for a long time, maybe you remember way back in the days before the internet. There was a, a kind of a, well, there was a twice yearly journal called Inquiring Mind, which sort of collected teachings and information and uh, was a sort of focal point for insight meditation and Vipassana style practice. There would be interviews with teachers and also a kind of listings about retreats that were happening around the world, etc. And a friend used to write a column in, which was by far the most interesting thing I, in that uh, journal, I used to think, uh, in the back page, the inside back page, and it was called The Dharma and the Drama. And he would reflect on uh, different things maybe going on in the Dharma scene, or it would reflect, you know, on the, the inner dramas that play out in our Dharma practice. And, you know, that's those two elements, the Dharma and the drama, are much of what we find ourselves both kind of invited into and contending with as, as we sit on retreat, or as we you know, intend towards a certain closeness with life, a certain exploration of life, a certain uh, waking up to life, and a vision of a freeness in life. So I thought I'd kind of reflect in a few different ways maybe on the intertwining of these two elements, um, reflect a little on the Dharma. Dharma is one of those words right, that's kind of hard to translate, right, which is often why it doesn't get translated. And maybe you're familiar with various ways, sometimes it's taken to be the, the nature of things. Sometimes taken to be actually the teachings of the Buddha. There isn't really a single English word, but the word that I would say is the best fit, the closest fit, if one's going to try and find a single word, maybe the word I'll be using this evening as I explore is nature. Dharma is nature. And certainly there's plenty of times when, when uh, in the Buddhist tradition and in the texts and in the teachings, when one's pointed to look at the dharma of things, the nature of things, the, the nature of experience, the naturalness of experience. Lots of ways we might point to that. Maybe we might first just begin in contemplating you know, the outer sense of nature and the way in which there's something you know, there's something that kind of our human heart, mind, soul might say responds to about being exposed to the natural world. 
I grew up in very much in the countryside. I grew up in uh, rural Sussex. But it was, but, and even though I sort of, you know, as a child would play in the forest or fields or whatever, it was very much a kind of um, nature was sort of just a landscape. And it was only when I started going on retreats and staying in monasteries and uh, practice centres, which at least for the first five years or so was mostly in Indian Himalayas and in Thailand, and then for the last 25 years or so, I've been with Gail living very rurally for the first 10 years in the French Pyrenees. Very rurally means without any electricity or running water, two kilometers from the nearest tarmac. And we think of the 90s basically as our lost decade. We don't know what happened in the 90s in the world. We didn't have any electricity or TV or anything. We don't really know the music or the films or the various cultural reference points. It's our dark decade, the 90s. We don't really know Oasis songs. Or, or, there you go, that's it. I ran out of references there. And when I, when I started kind of... Um, practicing, when you're doing Dharma practice, then you know, nature starts to come alive to me in a different way. In, um, in a way that somehow was very reflective of what was happening inwardly and what I could uh, see playing out around me. Certainly in terms of the teachings that I was absorbing and trying to investigate and practice with, like teachings on the nature of things, teachings on the nature of mind, teachings on human nature. And seeing those teachings very much reflect and reflected by and expressed in the natural world. The, the, you know, when we pay attention, maybe since you've been here, like the beautiful Devon nature. Somehow when we expose ourselves to, to nature, we, when we let ourselves be touched by nature, when we not just look at nature, but when we kind of just really, really open to, listen to, feel into. And we kind of we're impacted by the, ironically, by the naturalness of nature. Seems something rather obvious, but there's something about, oh, you let yourself be touched by the naturalness of nature, the naturalness with which rain falls, or grass grows, or weather happens, the naturalness with which seasons change, with which light moves to dark. And it's often something kind of relieving, or reassuring, or soothing, happen in a certain, have a certain natural unfolding to them, a certain um, you know, orderly unfolding to them. Right? It's like there's a certain natural intelligence to nature. 
which we can't often make sense of. It's not when we think of intelligence, we often think of a kind of, you know, a very human version of intelligence, an intellectual style of intelligence, a rational kind of intelligence. We can't really ascribe rationality to the way trees grow or the way ants um, carry leaves or uh, to the way, you know, weather moves across the sky. But there's undeniably a kind of intelligence to it. Nature's intelligence, nature's brilliance, nature's um, uh, naturalness. And uh, when we let ourselves feel into that or allow for that, uh, the fluidity with which nature expresses itself, reveals itself, a constantly changing nature. You look at a leaf for a few minutes and see things change. And watch rain fall for a few minutes. And contemplate nature. You start to be touched by the naturalness of it. And the effect of that kind of contemplation often is one where we start to um, have the light of our awareness drawn towards our own nature. That's at least the opportunity. And it may be that as well as being struck by the the beauty of uh, nature, the freshness of nature, the naturalness of nature, but actually what often we're struck by, if we really attend to it, is the way that kind of invites us to reflect on or to recognize our own naturalness. That's very much the invitation of Dharma practice, to to find the naturalness of our human being, to find a natural expression of being human. And often our expressions don't feel very natural. Often they feel kind of contrived or awkward or um, uh, fractious in some way. We often feel ourselves to somehow be in opposition to ourselves or to someone else or to life in some way. And so we might both feel the longing for a kind of a natural ease natural expression, one that feels like it's in harmony with life, rather than a very uncomfortable feeling which is, can, can be all too common for us, of feeling somehow in conflict with life, in conflict with our own nature. So, we could use that image of oh, this, this wish, or this practice of expressing a naturalness of being. We could apply that to our practice here. Right? And just we're trying to be so, to like start at the beginning. Right? Let's not make it too complicated. Let's just try sitting quietly. And what would it be to sit quietly, naturally? What would it be just to walk? naturally. What might be a real natural expression of a human sitting? A natural expression of a human walking? 
an expression that's uncontrived, uncontrolled, uncensored, unstruggled with. And uh, it can be a little shocking somehow to see how, um, how difficult that is for some reason. It's very simple, but it turns out to be not at all easy. The, the contrivances, and the overlays, and the friction, and the attempts to get somewhere, to do something, tend to really interfere with whatever the vision we might have is of a, a more natural way of being. Interesting, if we just think of Dharma practice as the orientation towards the natural, Sometimes I think we, we make Dharma practice rather complicated. We uh, imagine convoluted goals when we speak about awakening, or liberation, or enlightenment, or some of those other kind of ultimate kind of epithets. We often imagine that there's something very special or uh, um, secret going on there. That we would, we want, we're going to awaken to something special, something extra profound. But maybe what we're invited is to awaken to the naturalness of things, the naturalness of the human body, the naturalness of the human heart, the naturalness of the human mind, the naturalness of a human experience. And the, the naturalness of being here then doesn't seem so far away as something that we've overlaid, usually with a lot of our own ideas and often quite unhelpful ideas of something special, especially profound, etc. Somebody once asked a Zen teacher, what's the essence of Zen? And the reply was, eat when hungry, sleep when tired. An attunement to that which is natural. It's actually one of the things I love myself when I when I'm on solitary retreat. Is a kind of just a disregard for the conventions of uh, usual time and formality. An opportunity just really kind of tune into to feeling for a natural response, a natural rhythm. I have a, a friend, a student, who's, who's doing a dark retreat at the moment for a month. So he's in complete pitch black, pitch black, pitch black for a month. And he has no idea what day it is, what time it is. The only reference point is that I, I call him every three or four days or so to check in. But they don't, I don't call it a regular time of day. And he's got his phone kind of all hidden away and just a, he can press a button on the headphones so that he can answer the phone. That's the only reference. It's very interesting just exploring with him some of the, the disorientations that arise, right? Certainly a, a dropping away of convention, dropping away of habit. I mean, it's rather, you know, it might sound like a rather extreme way to, to do that. He's also an artist. So the first week he's, he's, he's drawing and painting and he's done quite a lot of work in the dark. 
And it's interesting, right, as the, the works he thinks he knows what he's drawing. I mean, but it often comes out rather differently than the assumptions. And exploring, in a lot of ways to explore uh, our human nature. And, and being on retreat like this as well, it's often a way we put aside some of the conventions, right? Often we're, we're busy kind of um, deciding and defining our own wishes and our own activities, our own preferences. Right? What am I going to do? And when am I going to do it? And how am I going to do it? And what do I want? And we're kind of invited or maybe even required to a certain extent to just put a lot of that aside on retreat. And just bell rings. That's it. And just stay there. And the bell rings. And go and walk. And just keep walking. Till the bell rings. Etc. And in, in many ways we can really, we can see that as an opportunity to just give attention to the naturalness of being here. And we can very much see whatever overlays get added onto that. It took me, I think, a long time in my practice, despite that being kind of very, very touched and impacted by nature very early on. I was feeling consistently, actually, from from the beginning of my practice, that nature was the guru, in a way. And even though I was very, uh, felt very grateful to my human teachers, right, the real, the real um, the master teacher, if you like, the guru seemed to be nature, mountains and trees and water and forest. And the, the expression of uh, a naturally unfolding life the invitation, or at least the sensing in myself of the opportunity to kind of, to give myself to that same kind of the natural unfolding. It's like, oh, mountain knows how to be a mountain. Trees know how to be trees. Sky knows how to be sky. What would it be like if Martin knew how to be Martin? Rather than Martin trying, for example, to get enlightened. Or rather than Martin trying to meditate. Or rather than Martin, you know, trying to live actually, in, in various ways. Or, or Martin trying to impress people, or Martin trying to be clever, or Martin trying to stop thinking, or Martin trying to be spiritual. Oh, poor old Martin. <laughs> really. What would it be like if Martin could learn from trees? If, you know, trees are showing me how to be trees, and the sky is showing me how to be sky, how might I show me how to be me? Despite the sense of that, um, of the kind of the potency of nature as a teacher, it took me a long time to to appreciate that, the, ironically, the naturalness of all that. Very strong, the the attempt to to be special or to get somewhere special or to understand something special. Um, how you might um, let in 
naturalness of experience. The simplicity of experience. The fluidity of experience. Naturalness of body, heart, mind are doing their thing. Because often rather than letting ourselves be natural, we're often trying to be something else, sometimes we're trying to be normal rather than natural. There's all kinds of ideas about what normal might be. Whether that's sort of societal norms or even meditative norms. Sometimes people will ask in a meditation retreat, they'll tell me what's happening. And then, oh, this is going on. Is it normal? Right. As if there is a normal, or as if normal matters. Right. Is what's happening to me or for me, is it normal? And of course I can understand the, well, there's a wish for reassurance, right? But actually, does it matter if it's normal? How might it be if to put aside the concern about whether my experience is normal or not and to, to attend to it as if it's natural? Because it's happening. And maybe everything that is natural, whatever happens in body, is natural. Whatever happens in mind is natural. Whatever happens in heart is mat- natural. It's natural to have human emotions. It's natural to have human thinking. It's natural to have human sensations. The very fact that we can speak about this stuff and we say, oh, I feel a certain way and we understand each other, it's because it's natural human experience. An invitation to kind of trust the naturalness of experience. If we want to enter into what's happening, be present with what's happening, inhabit what's happening, you've really, we really have to let what's happening be Okay. To let what's happening be natural. If we decided that what's happening here isn't okay, that it's somehow wrong or bad or uh, isn't normal, then it's very hard to to let that open up. If we decided that what's here shouldn't be here, then we've already started to somehow reject it, push it away. You can't really have an unnatural experience. And you just cast your mind back over the last 24 hours. Everything that's happened since you've got here is natural. If you've had moments of anxiety, it's natural. If you've had moments of inspiration, it's natural. If you've had a moment of excitement, Followed by a moment of discouragement. It's natural. I'm not going to list all human possibilities, right? <laughs> but, but basically, you know, what, how is it? You just contemplate, oh, whatever is going on. And whatever is going on. And whatever can go on. Whatever will go on. It's okay. It's natural. It can be met. It can be made room for. It can be explored. It can be recognized as as part of your human nature. It can be recognized as natural experience. 
in the same way that you know the seasons follow seasons and that um, spring shoots turn into green leaves and then fade and dry up in the autumn. In the same way that things follow their rhythm. Oh, same in human nature. If we have an experience now, and maybe it's a confusing experience or maybe it's a painful experience, but oh, that's actually, it's natural in the sense, it makes sense in terms of what's gone before. We're constantly sort of uh, uh, receiving the influences of our past conditioning, the habits of mind that we've developed, the beliefs that we've developed, the defences that we've developed. It's natural to develop defences and develop beliefs and develop wishes and develop preferences. Oh, maybe that's a relief, right? Oh, it's natural to develop these things. You let them be natural, somehow there's access to listening to them, feeling into them, exploring them. And if we don't let our experience be natural, if we're not rather gracious and receptive and allowing of what's happening, then we move from the Dharma, the natural, to the drama. The, the overlays, the, the fussing and fighting with what's happening, the generating all kinds of, um, of, of thoughts about ourselves and others and the world and our practice and what's happening and what should be or could be uh, happening differently. And then we get very kind of, our mind gets kind of crowded and clouded by all of that drama. Lots of ways we could, many, many ways to look at human drama. There's a lot of it. But mostly, all of that drama is of, of like I say, we could look at it in different ways, but let's, in this sense, uh, look at a way I think we can reduce all that human drama to three kinds of, three kinds of drama. Yeah. What I want, not a drama there. What I believe, not a drama there. And who I am, extra drama there. And so maybe, you know, normal human thoughts going along. It's normal, right? Human wanting, normal. Manufacturing of ideas and beliefs and views, natural. Being concerned with who, who I am, natural. But we can attend to the difference between the naturalness of wanting, the naturalness of, of thinking, uh, believing, conceiving, the naturalness of being concerned with what or who this is, and concerned with our identity, and where that becomes you know, drama, where it becomes unhelpful, where it becomes overlay, where it creates friction with the naturalness of being here. And those, all of that, those concerns, what I want, what I believe, who I am, sometimes they're playing out just in a kind of background, low-level, blah-blah-blah way. Oh, yeah. Bit of wanting, oh, I'd like that, oh, that would be nice, oh, I wish that. Maybe you've noticed that today. 
And so, or they can be happening in a charge drive. Oh my God, I really want the bell to ring. Or whatever it is. And beliefs, you know, you can manufacture low-level ideas and beliefs and views about things. Oh, that's such a, oh, oh she did that. Oh, it's like me. Low level, not very compelling, but it's constantly reinforcing a sense of the world that we're kind of pronouncing little judgments on things. Or that also can be charged. We can find ourselves getting very kind of contracted around, very righteous about a certain view of how things are, of how things should be. We get very invested in being right about something. Or the sense of identity. Right? Often that's going on very low level. It can seem, if we t- attend to it, it's almost constant. Right? Pretty much every thought begins with the word I. Right? I want, I like, I think, I am. Right? And we're just reinforcing a sense, oh, I'm, I'm this kind of person, I'm that kind of person. One can be sitting there in, in meditation, right? In te- idea is we're sitting naturally, breathing naturally feeling naturally, hanging out naturally. But actually, one can be endlessly constructing various senses of selves, right? the sense of self, and trying on. And in a moment of calm, we say, oh, wow, I'm so calm, I'm so calm. Right? As if that's who I am. And then we're so busy telling ourselves how calm we are that we get agitated through the repetition of the idea. And then, oh, now I've lost it. I'm never, I'm never going to be able to meditate. I'm a hopeless meditator. And we construct a sense of who I am around that. And then, you know, it lurches around from one thing to the next. Oh, I'm hungry. Now that's who I am. And I'm hungry. And then I start fixating on lunch. And then I rush off to lunch and I eat so much. that like, oh, now I'm so full. I'm full. That's who I am. And then, oh, I'm so greedy. Why did I eat so much? And that's who I am. Now I'm exhausted. Oh, that's who I am. Like, well, which one? Are you greedy? Are you exhausted? Are you hungry? Are you... So it can be going on in low level, or we can get really, we can, you know, invest hugely in, in strong and you know, often painful limiting beliefs about who I am. And who I am has a lot of measurement, judgment, comparison to it. So, as I say, on one hand, natural. Thinking is natural. Wanting is natural. Concern with identity is natural. We'd actually be in a mess if we didn't have any of those things, right? And wanting gets very bad press in Buddhism. Sometimes I have some idea of a practice that's taking us beyond desire, beyond wanting. Not sure that sounds so desirable, actually. Seems to me very, very inherent. Seems to be very naturally human to want. Right? To want to be comfortable. Natural. To want to be loved. Natural. To want to take care of others. Natural. To want to understand. It's natural. Right? Important. And then, you know, generating views. What? Are, what? How is this? How does this seem to be? How does this work? What's happening here? How can I understand this? Very important. 
natural, healthy, generative, creative, progressive. And then, who am I? What is this human existence? How come I'm here? And now that I'm here, how to relate to being here? Natural. All humans throughout all time have, have wanted to, 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 to nourish themselves and to understand themselves and to kind of uh, consider themselves. But invest that with drama. And I was just walking up and down in the corridor upstairs before coming in here and thinking, so what, you know, how, how do, what, what are the ways we invest that in, in drama? And I thought two ways we do that is, is with the attempt for certainty and for security. Certainty and security are very Mm, very uncertain and insecure things. <laughs> There's not much certainty in life. I can tell you for sure that you're on a one-way street towards certain death. That's certain. That's where the certainty stops. There's very little else. Right? That's certain. So if you really want certainty, rely on that. Right? We're hurtling at an unknown rate down a one-way street towards our, uh, our demise. For the rest, not much is certain, right? And yet, if you look, that's the encouragement, right? We're sitting here, a natural sitting, and then we notice the drama, the friction, the investment. How often, when there's wanting, we're grasping for certainty, is the feeling, if I could be sure of what I want, Right? And then the security, and if I could get what I want, then I'd be okay. There's not much evidence to support that. Because right? plenty of times you have gotten what you want, and then the problem is you just quickly start to want something else. Right? It doesn't really provide the security, and we tend to be very uncertain about what we want. Sometimes I do that as an inquiry with people, and get people to ask each other again and again, what do you really want? Tell me what you really want. It's a fascinating question because none of us really know. You ask that question 10 times, 20 times, 100 times. Ask yourself that one day, then another day, and another day. What do I really want? It becomes a kind of vast question. So imbue these things with a hope for certainty, and a hope for security. If I got what I wanted, then I'd be okay. And they don't offer it to us. And that's where the drama is. Nothing wrong with wanting. But the expectation of certainty and security leaves us, um, leaves us neurotic in the face of wanting. Leaves us desperate in the face of our wanting. Leaves us compulsive in the face of wanting. Leaves us kind of exhausting ourselves in that pursuit of certainty and security. And the same with the beliefs. If I could really figure out what's right, what I believe, then you know, I could have some sort of security in that. We would love to be right, but life is very tenuous. 
probably had that experience of really thinking you're right about something, uh, and then your view changes. Sometimes just a simple thing like a memory. You know, within our family sometimes, we remember things very, very clearly, definitely sure of how we remember things. We were both there, and we both remember them completely differently. Right? We've got one <laughs> argument within our family about the conversation we had, Gail and me and our two kids. And we all remember the conversation. And our son said something very funny at the end of the conversation, so we all remember <laughs> it. But we all have a completely different view about where the conversation took place. I know we were in the car. Right? I know we were in the car. But uh, my daughter knows we were walking along the seafront in Brighton when this happened. I can't even remember what you think it happened. But, right? So, there's not much certainty in, in what we think. And there's not much security in what we think. What would it be like to, to, to recognize the view, all the view productions, the thought productions, the belief productions? You know, to, to stand in them when they're helpful without relying on them to somehow be right, to confirm our rightness, to shore up our insecurity. And then that sense of who I am. It's, actually, it's, it's, it's beautiful to be deeply concerned with who I am. We may have come to a retreat like this for all kinds of reasons. We may have gotten into this practice for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes, increasingly, as mindfulness is offered as a kind of cure-all for anything and everything, it seems. Right? Mindfulness-based, you know, this and that and this and that. And there's some fantastic applications of that. There's also increased the variety of reasons people might come to a retreat. And we might come to a retreat because of, you know trying to address some specific problem, or we come to a retreat because we've heard that meditation's good for X or Y or Z. But actually, when we, when we really come and start paying attention, quite quickly, beyond whatever our initial intention was, we start to inevitably be curious about what it even is to be human, what it is to have a mind and a body, what it is to be awake, what it is that's knowing, receiving, sensing, experience. What it is that kind of is cognizing, responding. It's one of the most wonderful and pervasive and vast questions we can ask ourselves. Who am I? And the only the only thing that goes wrong there is we try <coughs> to find an answer. We grasp for certainty. The initial certainty, I'm Martin, as if that means anything. Or we, you know, we add on layers of philosophical kind of certainty to that. Or then we come to Buddhism and say, oh, I'm not Martin. Not anyone. Nobody here. We get, can get rather convoluted with that. We can be as certain of the fact that there isn't a self as we were certain that there was a self. The world tries to find uh, its security in being someone. And then we get into Buddhism, we try to find some security in being no one. And again, what might it be like to... You know, the, the naturalness of that question, the openness of that question, to tolerate the mystery 
What might it be like to genuinely be interested in what this is? Who this is? Who's awake here? Who's speaking here? Who's listening here? Who's feeling here? Allow that to be a vital question, an alive question, uh, a deep question, a a question about our nature. And maybe that question can really open up. Maybe our wanting can really open up. Maybe our thinking can really open up. If we want that to happen, we have to be willing to just keep gently leaving aside the drama, leaving aside the expectation of getting what I want, leaving aside the relying on being sure of what I think, letting go of the certainty around who I think I am. And we might find the Dharma uh, penetrating the drama, we might find that actually we can, that our wanting can be natural, beautiful even, and kind of dynamic, creative, a life-affirming force in our life. And find that our thinking can be natural, brilliant, elucidating, creative, exploratory. And we might find that our, our being here our sense of self, our feeling of meanness, our inherent here-ness can start to be wide open, luminous, liberated. We might start to find that we can be here more and more freely, more and more naturally. more and more naturally. That's the promise and the the real possibility of our practice. So, we do our best to sit naturally walk naturally, feel tired naturally, as looks like some of you are, towards we come to the end of the day. And to sort of you know, get out of our own way with that. To, it's a lovely line, you know, from the Lord's Prayer, to forgive us our trespasses, you know, to forgive us our dramas, to come back to, the, it, it's natural that this is here, it's natural that this is happening. To let the naturalness be as a be a way to welcome experience, digest experience, let experience arise and pass, let experience express its nature, reveal its nature, pass on naturally. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.